Mitch McConnell. You turtleneck fuck. You turtle, turtle without a shell, some bitch. You got motherfuckers out here dying, man. You trying to protect some motherfucking corporations, man? Time out for that bullshit. And every corporation, our tax trade dollars that bailed out, and motherfucking every time we done bailed you bitches out, y'all better be making the shit we need. God damn it. That's what time it is. You sons of bitches. You greedy motherfuckers. You so goddamn greedy, you ain't gonna have nobody to buy the shit you make, you silly motherfuckers. Get on this shit. Sick and tired of you motherfuckers, assholes. Punk made, bitch made motherfuckers. Yeah, I'm talking to you, Republican Party. Republican mass asshole party. Motherfucking dickheads. Yes. Um, it is Friday, March 27th, uh, 2020. How is everyone's hell going? I'm just going to assume everybody is going through hell, staying in their goddamn house, Trying to figure out what to do. Trying to talk to their loved ones. Hey, let's let's watch Birds of Prey one more goddamn time so we won't have to deal with each other. Listen, I'm going to keep it a buck, as my colleague uh, Oz Longworth would say it. Just because, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the hell to tell you right now. Just, you know, just, just, it's the coronavirus. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just making everybody sick. And, um, while other countries seem to be trying their best to figure out what to do, uh, the U.S. is just a complete cluster, clusterfuck. I mean, I, before I just got on the mic, uh, Donald Trump was uh, cursing out some reporter about how, why he wants people to go back to work by Easter. By the way, just Easter, the whole, hey, let's, you know, Christ risen around that time. Why don't we, why don't we all just rise and get back to work? Yeah, it's, uh, and, and he was just, you know, just being a goddamn petulant douchebag as he often is, which is just, can, can we just agree at this point that dude doesn't know what the fuck he's doing? Can we just, just get on that train? Like, this is the wrong man to lead the country in a crisis because he is very bad at it. I mean, let's, let's not forget about like, it was like last week where he, where a reporter literally like said to him, like, listen, he threw him what is known as a softball, which is just like, just tell the people who are scared because everybody's sick. There are people dying. Just tell them why they, you know, what, what word do you have for people for all the people who are scared. And he just said, you're a terrible reporter. That is, that is such the wrong response for that. 
dude literally just just told, just gave you an out just like for you to be presidential and you couldn't even do that. You sack of shit. It's just Oh, god damn it. It's just I I know like you know not trying to dwell on the past but you know when Obama was president he went through the swine flu and Ebola and I didn't even remember about that shit until all the all the right wing tweeters pointed out, oh, like a lot more people died during the swine flu. Yeah, but he still like kept that shit under control. But because like that was like by the end, because he was trying to get vaccines and trying to contain it and everything. Like the like the people who died from swine flu, you know, if you count the you know that number, those are the number of people that is that is around the area of the number of people who are currently dying from coronavirus. So it's just like, and this is just March. So something tells me more people are going to. You know, get, I mean, there there are already people, you know, great, you know, people dropping dead because of this shit. We got like Terrence McNally, he died from coronavirus. I'm pretty sure Stuart Gordon, the director of uh, Reanimator, uh, he died yesterday, but I'm pretty sure that was it. He was 82 or something like that. So, all I'm saying is just like, you know, Obama. With him, like there was a swine flu and Ebola, and I forget, and I forgot all about that shit because he had everything on lock. He had various departments and channels on control of this shit. And from what I grasp, with uh, Donald Trump, who hasn't been doing the best job at all, anything like that, he's all always about we're doing a hell of a job. No, you're not. You're not doing a hell of a job. Just people are running around losing their goddamn minds wearing masks of any sort, like scuba gear, going in the stores, uh, going in the stores, uh, getting in the fights over fucking toilet paper. You know, just like if you give them like a day more toilet paper. There's not a toilet paper shortage in the slightest. You can go to Costco and they just have aisles and aisles of toilet paper. I know it may not be the best toilet paper, but they got those. And uh, just people around here in these parts of this, we don't know what to do. And listen, I was just thinking about this as I was pulling up in the Walmart. I got to go back in the Walmart and get a stereo headphone adapter after this but it's just like i really feel we would have a better grip on what's going on if people just learned how to care about one another you know i've been preaching this shit kind of i, I pretty i'm pretty sure i preached at the top of the year when i drunkenly came on here and said hey you know, just, just spend like a day or a month or whatever donating the shit. And uh, just like, just people, you know, just you know, trying to figure out how to care. Just if we all cared about each other, just like trying to put all our resources in where nobody 
would have to deal, you know, just nobody would just have to deal with the overwhelming array of things that are just piling on top of each other when you just watch the news or go on social media and just, I mean, Jesus Christ, it's two nights ago, the lieutenant governor of this of this state that I currently live in uh, went on uh, Tucker Carlson talking about how, you know, we should go to work and, you know, if some old people die because of that, hey, how, how has that man not stepped down from office already? Has he stepped down? I don't know. The news cycle is very fast. But that like that that was some appalling shit that he did. Like cause he agreeing with Trump, because like the whole deal is just like have to have to get back to work by whatever Easter time or some shit like that. And he was just like, hey, you know, you know, old people, you know, my you know, my grand or whatever the fuck he was talking about, my grandparents, you know, didn't you know, we should just hunker down and just Oh God! Just that that she, she said that that you know I I don't know verbatim but it's just like just appalling to hear some guy just agree I I agree with Trump we should get back to work because you know uh, Grandpa Stan would understand that we could people you know it's not just Grandpa Stan it's a lot of other people getting sick from coronavirus a lot of People just singling out old people like, yo, these motherfuckers got to go. They've been here for a lot. By the way, probably the most uh, most supportive demographic for the Trump administration, old people. And you just saying, yeah, f- you know, fuck them. Just, if, if that should, should not tell you that Trump really doesn't give a fuck about anybody, that should really just, you know. That's, 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 that's some, that's some. Some sad, desperate shit right there. And people people are just at home, just flipping the fuck out, just doing whatever the hell they can. They keep on doing that TikTok, uh, give me something new thing, that dance. First of all, did not know that song was three years old. That shit is three years old, and now y'all suddenly decide to make a dance out of it, and y'all just injuring each other, apparently. Just falling all over each other. I've seen videos of people just falling over each other and just like pa- passing the fuck out because apparently they're they've all they all, when they all do it they're drunk. Like oh let's let's do the gimme something new challenge and just like literally injuring each other. Oh Christ! Everybody got the everybody got as Tony Baker would say the beverage. Um. Prince Charles today, yeah. Prince Charles, uh, as I'm recording this, he got the he got the corona. Uh, Jackson Brown got the corona. I don't. It's not funny. I was just thinking like all you know, uh, just like so many different people of every, every like you know. First we got Tom Hanks, then we got Idris Elba, Slim Thug, Boss Man of the South, Slim Thug. God damn it, he's got the corona. It's Slim Thug got it. Jesus. Uh, Harvey Weinstein got it. Whatever. Just he he should get it just for 
for destroying Mira Sorvino's career. I have that we we should how we haven't gotten all together and just was like Mira Sorvino should have been like a game shit, but you wanted to fuck Mira Sorvino and she wasn't having it, so you destroyed her career. And I'm just like I don't give a fuck about what whatever Harvey wants he has. He could he could just you know. He could get like uh you know back you know the syringe injected with AIDS on Oz didn't they used to like on Oz every like every other episode somebody get injected with the syringe full of AIDS and just in prison and just they they got it so maybe that's too much to say that Harvey Weinstein gets syringe full of AIDS but hey just like that's how I feel about Harvey Weinstein fuck that dude. Fuck Harvey Weinstein for all the movies he shelved back in the early 2000s because Gwyneth Paltrow wasn't in it. Oh, shit. He fucked up the movie industry for a lot of people, just letting you know. Um, yeah, some, some people are, are reaching out. It's the funny thing about this whole thing because everybody's staying at home and they're getting cabin fever and they're freaking the fuck out. And so they're reaching out to each other various ways. Zoom. Apparently Zoom is a big thing with people. And uh, everybody's going on IG Live and just doing shit. IG Live talking or DJing. You know, everybody's DJ. If you have like some sort of turntable apparatus at your home, you will be DJing at some point. Like, you know, D-Nice, he set up. First of all, D-Nice, I I'd never thought I'd, I'd hear that name. And so long. Apparently, he's a big DJ, and he's been DJing all during the weekends and shit. And everybody's showing up like the Obamas and, and Rihanna and every Mark Zuckerberg. I got fr- I literally got DJ friends, and they're all on live DJing. Knife Wonders DJing. Quest loves DJing. So, you know, if you got if you got you know, it's a funny thing. Like I, I've always I've always wanted to be a DJ but I could never afford any of the equipment. I could never afford the turntables. Definitely couldn't afford all like the, 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 the fancy pioneer, uh, Serato shit. So like the perfect time, this is the perfect time for me to make a name for myself as a DJ. And I have no goddamn DJ equipment. That nothing like nothing like a pandemic to remind you of all the bad decisions you made in life. <sighs> God damn it! Wish there's other news to talk about, but everybody's scared that they will get the coronavirus and die. Keep on thinking I might get. It. I'm you know I'm in a studio right now, which I think is a big no no. Um, this probably might be the last one I'll be doing for a while because everybody's staying at home and I don't know if I fucking do all this shit on my phone yet. Uh, but, uh, just, yeah, everybody's at home trying to do, do their best. As I mentioned, trying to, uh, stay focused and stay sane. Oh shit! Just uh, everybody's you know, but but, but you kind of prepared for all of this because you know everybody's been Netflix and chilling for a hot minute now. It's just like 
people just uh, staying at home, just watching wherever they can because nobody goes home any, nobody goes out and really functions. At least from my perspective, just like nobody, nobody really calls me up and say, "Hey, let's hang out and do shit." Nobody's done that shit on. You know, I'm, I'm sad. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if I should just delve in the fact that nobody really contacts me anymore. So, yeah, except, except a couple of people. So, uh, he, I, I don't, I'm not trying. I'm trying to see about not ending this on a down note because there was something I wanted to talk about, but I've I've lost the train of thought. And I'm just trying. I'm trying to get that whole the, the thing moving again. Where I'm just like, what the fuck did I want to say? And just like, uh, oh yeah, don't don't. Uh, well, there's other things I can talk about. Like, stop um, accusing uh, Asians of bringing the virus over here. That's a big one. We leave Asians the fuck alone. Just, they've been through a, you know, they've been through a lot of shit. I mean, like everybody, you know, a lot of people have been through a lot of shit, but just. Asians, just like, first of all, they did not, you know, Asians don't eat bats on the regular. So that was, who, who's the, 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 the Texas senator, that, that motherfucker, he's like trying to keep on bringing up how Asians are fucking bat and rat eaters and all that shit. Fuck him. Uh, besides any, any, you know, Asians have given us such wonderful things like John Woo movies and uh, Maggie Chung and Ming Na Wen and Lucy Liu. So just like, they will always be fucking cool with me. Um, just, just look out for each other. Just look out for each other and just, and also if, if, if people are fucking up, like on a royal, on on a gen, on an enormous level, you know, kind of like what Trump is doing. You know, just let people know they're fu- they're fucking up because it's just it's just because this is just getting too much now. I mean, you know, the whole you know, I know here in Houston they got a whole stay at home order, order and everything like that because it's it's there's a there's a virus going around that's making people sick. And I mean, it may not, you know, we can't tell what the future may bring. Maybe it won't be that big a deal. Maybe it's not. But just like, like at the time being, just think about other people's well-being. Try not to think about you know, whatever corporations trying to bail them out. Like they need more fucking money. Just, just trying to just, you know, look out. I'm, I'm just trying to say, just, just look out for each other. Like, let people know that you care. Just, this is all just randomly just holler at people say, Hey, I care about you motherfucker. Just don't get sick and all that shit. Cause let me tell you something. I've been the specs three times in three days. Cause if I'm going to deal with all this bullshit, I'm going to be drinking. And you know, there's, there's all, if there's, not a better time to tell people you love them than while you're drinking. I don't know what that is. That time is. So, you know what? I'm just going to go into music.
because this is just a crazy ass 20 minutes I just spent talking to you. Oh, jeez, what a fucking man. Just let me just set everything up here. Uh, this is the the spottiest show on the interwebs. This is everything is canceled. Let's do this horseshit. Tucked on my waist, fuck a 
clips. Why you so bad? 
good experience company Knows all the ways is what you need, baby Just you For our heads And we Do it all over Won't you Won't you Won't you
right, let's push the wrong button there. Hey, uh, this is everything is canceled, a.k.a. Uncle Crizzle's coronavirus time. And yes, I am Craig D. Lindsay, a.k.a. Uncle Crizzle, a.k.a. Black Larry David, a.k.a. Anastasia Beaverhausen, a.k.a. Arsenic Ditch Shrink. Uh, whatever. And um, let me just uh, tell you what I just played. Uh, starting up at the top was... Uh, 1238 12.38 from uh, Childish Gambino from his latest album uh, 3.15.20 3.15.20 I believe the um, the title uh, being passed around on um on the uh, social medias is Vibrate. That's my uh, favorite track from his latest album, which he just dropped. He finally dropped in the middle of the night last weekend. There's people been playing it. What does it all mean? Sure as hell won't get an answer out of him. Just So just accept it, what you may. And after that, uh, that was uh, No Vacancy. A uh, track from uh, Austin Powell uh, featuring uh, Abigail Barlow. Uh, Austin Powell uh, is uh, one of those uh, reactors on on the uh, on the Fine Brothers channels, and uh, he keeps saying he's is a, a musician. So I just uh, looked him up on on the streaming sites and. Uh, and uh, listen to this track and say, oh, shit, that's good. So I thought I'd play it up here. And uh, after that, um, I played the unedited mix of uh, Come Live With Me, Angel by Mr. Marvin Gaye. believe written and produced by uh, Leon Ware on the I Want You album. That's from the deluxe edition that came out two decades ago sometime around it and it's, uh, it's my favorite Marvin Gaye album it's my favorite um deluxe edition so I thought I'd uh, play because uh that has a lot in common with uh the guest um I'll be talking to in a minute but uh before I do that there were there were a couple other things I wanted to add uh to my rant uh like the fact uh let's see you know, yeah why does Trump keep calling it the Chinese uh, virus, you know, you're just being a petty bitch now, but then again, he's always been a petty bitch, just like a goddamn sad little bitch. Um, you know, talking about reusing masks for liquids and all that bullshit. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, just like, we're going to have to, you know, see if we can get him the fuck out of there. Yeah. You know, or, or less just cause, uh, cause, uh, I, I saw a quote that he said about Trump and he said, like, I just can't, I can't jump in front of the microphone and push them down. You could try. 
Because it's obvious he don't know what the fuck he's talking about. Just knock him the fuck out the way and say, listen, don't listen to motherfucker. Just like, listen to me because I know science and all that shit. And, um, he, you know, he, he said, okay, he said it. Let's try and get it corrected for the next time. How about right then and there? Just like, listen, uh, yeah, he, what he said was completely wrong. Here's what you need to know. That's what the point of the press conferences are supposed to be about, that you should actually know the shit they're talking about. We shouldn't have to wait till like some fact checkers come along. Uh, and by the way, uh, the, you know, the media, you me, know, the press, whoever, just like, just like next time he says you're a terrible reporter, just say, Hey, you're a terrible president. We even motherfucker. Just we terrible. Cause you terrible. Stop being afraid of this bitch. Just like, like I said, he's a petty little bitch. You know, just tell him to his face. You ain't doing what you're supposed to be doing. And you want to call us fake news. What the fuck ever. Just, you know, maybe do your goddamn job and stop. Stop being all mad at, at uh, Governor Cuomo or Mitt Romney. All the fuck. Just, I don't know if you know this, but my grandparents are coughing up blood and shit. So you might want to get on that. All right, let's get into our guest. Um, like I said, I played Marvin Gaye because uh, my uh, guest for this for this installment actually interviewed uh, Marvin Gaye and Michael Jackson, Prince, so many different people. And for this one, we're gonna have to go uh, to we're gonna have to go to Google Voice. So. Um, let me just pull this shit up and you just start listening to it and just enjoying all that fun stuff. This call is now being recorded. Uh, all right. Uh, I am here uh, with today's guest. He is uh, a, a veteran uh, writer and critic who's written for uh, Village Voice. Uh, vibe, uh, billboard, musician, uh, author of such many books, uh, but my favorites, uh, including Buppies, B-Boys, Baps, and Bohos, Hip Hop America, uh, City Kid, he has, uh, he has his own line of detective novels, which we'll hopefully get into, and he also has a, uh, new collection out, um, called uh, the Nelson George Mixtape, Volume 1. So, uh, Nelson George, uh, welcome to Everything is Canceled. Yeah, yeah, Everything's Canceled for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, I was, yeah, I was, I was wondering if, you know, you get the time. I, you're in New York right now, right? Yeah, I just flew back uh, uh, the other day. Yeah, and so how how is it so far? Well, you know, just being there in a day and just witnessing everything. Is it just is it just a ghost town over there in the Big Apple? Well, I'm in Brooklyn, so Brooklyn is not uh, it's not the same feeling. It's a neighborhood. Um, people are going to the grocery stores. Uh, people are there's a lot more people in the street that seem to be in Manhattan. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, because the people are out doing, you know, the grocery stores, you still need food, you still need to go, uh, people are going to the pharmacy, um, the parks, so people are trying to stay in shape. 
um, people walking their dog. So it doesn't feel like a ghost town here, actually. Um, school's out. School's not in, so that you don't see the kids. But in terms of people uh, moving up and down, um, it's not it's not a ghost town. I'm sure it feels very different in Midtown, where all the businesses are, and you know where office buildings are. But where I'm at, I'm in the neighborhood, so it's not. Uh, it doesn't feel the same sense of. It's just a feeling of confinement because you you do go out because you need to get some things, but. It's not, um, right. Come on, you know, I, I'm not getting right. the subway right now, so, you know, stuff like that. So it does feel like you're confined a bit, but it, on a day-to-day basis outside, it doesn't feel scary or anything. Yeah. But, I mean, does it put a, uh, does it put a damper on what you've been working on as of late? Well, well, the good news for, for me is I'm a writer and a uh-huh. producer. I'm, I have a, two conference calls for later today. Uh, I have mm-hmm. a bunch of stuff to research. I have other meetings uh, on the phone later this week. So in terms of both my writing and uh, preparation for the other projects I'm working on, there's a lot to do. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. everyone's, going, everyone's home. So in terms yeah. of phoning people and reaching people, that, that's uh, it's probably easier in some respects because you know where they're going to be. Yeah, and um, well, I mean, we should, I guess we could you know, just get into uh, – um the uh book and because sure. uh, i mean i've you know, i've known your work for a long time um you know just being one of the more you know being one of the many influences that have uh inspired me to write about music and and black people stuff and uh, i love the uh the the whole format of the mixtape book which is just basically uh, old school uh, articles that you've written, uh, starting back in the uh, you know late seventies, going through the eighties, and it's it it literally is uh, just um, uh, uh, just copies of uh, reprints of uh, the pieces that you've done, and uh, just you know sort of like how you know a lot of people used to, or well, myself including you through back in the day, would just like take uh print edition of a of a paper therein and just cut it out and just uh attach it to a piece of white paper either through tape or through glue and uh just uh just so it just brought me brought back some memories of how I used to yeah. uh Yeah, put, I wanted uh, the to be a I wanted the book to be a tactile experience. I didn't want it to. I wanted. I mean, because in this day and age, for many people, you grew up with you know doing that, cutting your articles out and putting it up. But for a lot of people, it's um, they've never seen that. A lot of younger people. And then also, I think it uh, it communicates the sense of of the book being an artifact as opposed to just being reprinted. I've done. I did a previous book, Puppies, which was basically. You know, nicely retyped copies of old articles. But for this, I wanted it to feel more like a journey back into time. You really mm-hmm. see the whiteout where I, I was correcting things I wrote. You really see the tape shadow from things that had taped in books. So I wanted it to feel like uh, when you pick this up, it's not simply old articles, but it's it's almost an, a visual experience of traveling back to the 70s, 80s, mm-hmm. 90s. Into the era of newspapers and magazines. 
Yeah, and and you do pick out a lot of uh, very interesting uh, selections. Uh, a lot of you know your early uh, work with the the New York Amsterdam News uh, stuff you did for uh, you know back when you the uh, black music editor for Record World. You know, just yeah, and just doing a whole lot of different. And I'm just seeing like what was there a a, a, a a system of design of which pieces you uh, decided to use? Uh, I tried to find, like, some a lot of things that, that I felt were out of print that were really, um, you know, the Marvin Gaye interview, um, some of the early stuff I did on hip-hop, even the first piece I did for Musician uh, in 80. Um, so I tried to find a lot of stuff that wasn't, that I hadn't collected. Most of the stuff in the Buffy's collection is from The Voice. But it was a lot of there was a, other history um, of stuff that was predated the voice. Um, Amsterdam News, particularly, where the black newspaper I worked at, and then you know random things I did for New York Rocker magazine is a piece in there, and then there's uh-huh. also a couple of things that uh, had never really been in print, which is the Bob Marley full Bob Marley interview, which never got uh, I did when I was uh, I think at eighty, and it never really been published anywhere, and then the James Jameson interview which was done for the Motown book. And um, yeah. initially I interviewed him for an article on Musician, which is pre-printed in the, in the book. But I wanted to have the yeah. entire transcript because uh, it's one of the only interviews with Jameson uh, in existence, really. Yeah, well, those two are very interesting. I, I, I just have to answer quickly. I mean, just all right, were these uh, located up in a, you know, a, a, a filing box up at the home? I have a... No, I have a, yeah, I have a I have a, I have a, uh, in my, uh, I have a storage space now, but I had a spot where I, I collected a lot of stuff. I still have a lot of, actually I can see it right now. I have another thing with, uh, another collection of stuff, a lot more sports and, 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 and uh, a lot of film stuff actually. Um, uh-huh. but yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I, ha- I haven't thrown a lot away. I kept, I have stuff from all my Amsterdam news years and a lot of the billboard stuff I kept. I mean, initially, a lot of that stuff, some of that stuff was used in some of the books that I was writing back on music, you know, things like uh, the Motown book, Death, Rhythm, and Blues, yeah, the blues Pop yeah. America. Uh, but, uh, you know, some of them just like, you know, they're my, my history. And as print recedes, there's something very beautiful about um, having copies of these things, hard copies, as opposed to stuff that's digital. Yeah, especially considering, you know, I don't know if you've had to deal with this, but like I think, like there are certain outlets now that are just getting rid of, uh, their archives. Yeah, I, I wrote for one publication, uh, where they just like got rid of everything like the past, uh, just like 50, 60 years, which is a lot of stuff that I did in there, so. It's getting to the point where, like, a lot of us have no choice but to, like, resort, you know, get, see if we can get hard copies of what we've done. I mean, and those people are, are you know, they're throwing away history, which, which is going to be useful or would be useful for any number of, I mean, for people to understand how we lived, these publications and writings that are in, in the contemporary, not, you know, that written at the time. Mm-hmm. Um are so important, so it's a, it's a shame that they can't find a place to put this stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, 
you know, getting back to because uh, you talked about the uh, unreleased pieces that you include in the book, and the two that you brought up uh, was the you know, Bob Marley interview and the uh, the uh, James Jamerson interview. Those are two uh, very interesting ones because you and you also throw in uh, rejection letters uh, from yeah. from those uh, pieces, and the Bob Marley one. Uh, I found to be uh, the most interesting because you submitted that for Players Magazine, right? And for you know we, people who don't know, Players Magazine is a was a, 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 a like a Playboy for the um, African American crowd. Would you say? Yeah, absolutely. It was a uh, articles and the pictures of beautiful black women with no clothes on. So yes, it was a yeah. big deal. Uh, Somewhere, I used to have a copy of Pam Greer, or Cinefold. They got stolen by one of my friends from high school. Um, yeah, of course. So, yeah, so what happened was, uh, essentially, I did this interview in, um, I believe it's October, no- November of um, 1980. And that was, apparently, that was the week he was doing the show in, in Manchester Garden with the Commodores. Mm-hmm. Um and that was the week he got diagnosed with cancer in his foot. He died and got sick within, I think he was probably, I think he died that spring. I'm pretty sure he died that spring of 1981. So all the publications that already interviewed him ran big articles about his sickness and so forth. So there wasn't much of a market for this long interview with him. Uh, initially. Plus I was very young. I wasn't really an established writer. So I didn't really have a lot of relationships uh, outside of the Amsterdam News and doing some freelancing for billboards. So I really didn't have a lot of access. So um, players seemed like a place where you might be able to do a Q&A of it, but they sat on it for uh, a long, long time. And, then, you know, if you read the rejection letter, it's somewhat apologetic for not getting back to me about it. Um, yeah. But by the time they got back to me, every place that had wanted to interview Bob Marley had already written about him. Uh-huh. Um, and so it sort of sat there. I did... Use bits and pieces of it. I think, I think Ebony Magazine did took a little bit of it a few years ago for um, uh, anniversary of Marley. But basically, mm-hmm. uh, it sat in my uh, in my um, in my file cabinet for like thirty years or so. Wow. And just like, and how did the? Well, I just I'm sorry, I just about to. I just asking um, just how did the whole Marley interview come about? Because they got New York and the uh, you know. Uh, just how did you go about scoring that? Well, I was uh, there was a guy named Lister Ewan Lowe who was uh, a black executive at uh, Island Records, and he was in marketing. And you got to remember, Marley had been very interested and very determined to try and reach the black American audience. Oh yeah, he had a he had a big white following, and had a big you know obviously Caribbean following. But he was having he really wanted to penetrate because he was a, a you know he saw himself as a prophet. Of, mm-hmm. of Rastafarianism, so he saw his work not simply as musical sales, but also spreading the message of his religion. Uh, and so, you know, he did "Could You Be Loved." He was really trying to tap into black radio and in the black audience. That's why he was playing with the Commodores. So, you wow. um, knew I was a young writer. I was writing for you know both Billboard as a young guy and Amsterdam News. And he felt like maybe I could sell this article and get more coverage of Marley in the black press. 
So he gave me access to him. It was, he was staying at the Essex House Hotel. We were pretty vividly, actually, uh, on Central Park South. Um, it was a huge suite. Um, there were people in there. There were beautiful women walking around. They put me in a chair next to Marley, who was sitting kind of curled up with a guitar across from me. And when I would ask him a question, one thing you, you, you don't capture in the Q&A, is that sometimes he would play a little bit of music or sing a, a little bit and then answer the question. Uh-huh. So it was a, you know, I was very, it was a kind of, you know, surreal experience. I was probably, uh, uh, I was, what was I, I was like 20, was it 20? No, I was, uh, I was like 22, I think. I just, I think I just graduated from college. Uh, maybe about a year or so. So I was really young. It was probably the, he was the first U star I ever really met. Um, so it was, a, you know, it was a wild experience. And he was very gentle with me. I was very prepared. I had all my questions written out <laughs> very, very specifically. Um, so it was a hell of an experience, you know. And uh, the fact that he passed so quickly after makes it makes it even more surreal. Cause it was, yeah. It was likely one of the last lengthy interviews he did before he, you know, uh-huh. before he went into cancer treatment. Yeah. Uh, and and you, also, and you also mentioned James Jamerson. People for people who don't know, James Jamerson is uh, one of the uh, uh, longtime members of the uh, the Motown uh, backing band. Known as the Funk Brothers. He was the bassist. He came up uh, the bass line for. Uh, you know, what's going on and everything and uh actually like you your your piece that you mentioned uh uh standing in the shadows of Motown which was also which was uh uh in the uh Buffy's B Boys Bath and Boho's but that eventually led to the uh the documentary on the subject uh on, on the Funk Brothers and James Jamerson, that was a piece you uh, submitted to Rolling Stone. No, no, no. It was done for really? Musician Magazine. Oh, it was done for Musician. Well, what's wait? What was the Rolling Stone piece? Uh, I, I only did a couple little pieces for Rolling Stone. I did a few reviews. I never really wrote for that very much. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, because you uh, mentioned you, you had you have the the rejection letter in there. I thought that was oh, that was that was a, uh, that was a whole other thing. That was that was for a record review for um, that was a record review from like the and I was still in literally in high in college for a, a Lamont Doja album I wanted to review. So that that was that oh. was several many years before. Yeah, because because uh, uh, it, it mentions in the uh, rejection letter that. Uh, Oh, 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 I see what you're saying. So the, uh, yeah. That letter was a, I was trying to write a book on Motown. Yeah. And so, uh, but, but the James Jamison thing all happens. That, that is, that, um, that interview happens. I was, so I was interested in doing, I'd done a book on Michael Jackson, which you done a, had done very well during the Michael Jackson yeah. mania. But I really, my dream was to do a book on Motown. That was my real, uh, I was fascinated with the label. Um, and yeah. I felt at that point, there hadn't really been a really good book done on, on Motown. Um, so I got a uh, commission from Musician Magazine to go to Detroit. So I went to Detroit uh, and interviewed a ton of people, Earl Van Dyke and a lot of other great players. But at the time, James Jameson had, was very sick, and he was in kind of a sanatorium. And um, 
through some of the old Motown musicians, they got, I talked to his wife, Anne, and then she connected me with her husband. And so I, we did that on the phone. He was in some kind of like a, kind of a rehab type facility. Um, and uh, it was surprising because really, despite his uh, greatness and being admired and very, very well known, you know, one of the few Motown musicians who was actually really well known outside of the, you know, outside, in the, to the outside world, he had never really done a, any kind of lengthy interviews. And mm-hmm. um, this interview I did with him was actually one of the only ones that I know of of any length with him. So uh, he was the key player in many, many ways in the Motown sound. His bass lines were dynamic, melodic, and uh, anchored all of that great music. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, we talk, I talked to him uh, in that day. So that article, and that article really made it clear to me that the key to writing the book on Motown was not to just write about Smokey and not to write about Stevie or, or even Barry, but the musicians themselves. And they were key. They were the reason I could do the book because they all were still in, in the mid '80s. The majority of them were all still in Detroit, had felt kind of abandoned by the company. Yeah. And, and so they were more willing to um, to be honest about the working conditions. They all had great insight into the songwriters, obviously. They worked with everybody. They had great insights into all the singers and entertainers. So, they, you know, Jameson and Van Dyke and um, uh, Beans Bowles and uh, Pistol Allen. All these great, great musicians were really the people who uh, gave me the... the, the the information and the and the and the trust to be able to write that book where I love go and so the book I just really wanted to get the Jameson piece out uh, because he's kind of been the missing piece in terms of Motown history in a sense that we've never aside from this that you never really hear his his point of view on the process. Well, yeah, you know, like it's, uh, when I mentioned the objection letter, because it was just like interesting that you wanted to do something, you wanted to do the book, but it's just like it was, uh, something John Wenner didn't find particularly interesting. Yeah, and so, I mean, yeah, that was, he was just, that was, that was just one port, port of call. There were a lot of other publishers. Um, yeah. so the, the good news about that is a woman who worked at who worked, who wrote the letter to me. Uh, Sarah Lazen left Rolling Stone Books and became, she became my agent and she's been my agent since like 1987. Yeah. That's us. So, uh, it all turned out for the best. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Uh, and, you know, the funny thing is in looking through, uh, you know, in reading some of the stuff, uh, first of all, I did not, you, you know, find out, it's always interesting going back and find out things that you didn't know existed like there was a black punk band called in from Detroit called the Niggers. Yeah. That was a that was a piece you did. Yeah, just you know, because everybody's like, you know, just brings up a lot of other uh you know you know, black punk rockers seems to be this 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 thing where just like every now and again some bands come out of nowhere, just like uh wasn't wasn't like that band called Death? Right from Detroit. They're from Detroit as well, I believe. Yeah. 
And so, uh, so yeah, just like it, it's like it's, it's finding out different things. But the thing that I I enjoy the most about the book is that it just once again, just like uh, Buppy's uh, did before, kind of shows how you were basically kind of in this perfect uh, position because it's almost like you're in the middle of a, a perfect storm because. Uh, there was, uh, yeah, there was, uh, you know, the, the beginnings of hip hop. You, you, you written about that various ways. You, uh, you know, Mark, uh, Michael Jackson was, was achieving this, uh, worldwide pop notoriety. Prince was starting to become another, uh, uh, major, uh, black pop star. So it's just like you had uh, so many things, uh, that you were caught in the middle of that you could uh, write and report on. I mean, do you feel that way that, that there was just so much free ground for you to cover back then? Yeah. And you also got to throw in that the black film thing was happening. Uh, a lot of oh, it yeah. had to do with, you know, the spike and then the Hummin brothers and all of that happened, started happening. So that was a parallel uh, experience. And then I, I, I moved into by, by luck into a neighborhood uh, Fort Greene, Brooklyn, where mm-hmm. you had this community of, you had Spike Lee, you also had um, Wesley Snipes, Lawrence Fishburne, Rosie Perez all lived there, Wendell Pierce, you had Ranford Marsalis, Terrence Blanchard, Donald Harrison, you had the avant-garde people, people like, um, oh God, uh, great... Uh, Lester Bowie and some of the members of the World Saxophone Quartet, um, tons of other visual artists. I mean, Lorna Simpson. Um, so, so I was in the middle. So I was not only was all these things happening musically, you had these things happening culturally, and you had a neighborhood which was full of young black artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it was also a place where you got exposed to a lot of stuff. So not just, it was, I was definitely working in the music, you know, middle, because I was working at Billboard and I was writing for The Voice. But the film thing was happening, and there was great things happening in black theater, and there were great things happening in black visual arts. So, mm-hmm. um, and you go to a house party, uh, and you see, you know, people who would become Hollywood stars or who were on their verge of doing that. Everyone felt like they were, well... <laughs> I remember about that time, which was roughly, I would say, uh, 85, 86 into um, around 2000, was a, you saw people literally blow up and, you know, when I say, you know, become, Spike became a major pop cultural figure right in front of our eyes. Uh, Wesley became a big mm-hmm. movie star. You know, the, the Marsalis brothers became a huge thing in their space. And then obviously hip hop was happening. So, um, it was a very vital time. Uh, and so I was lucky enough to be a journalist working, you know, in the middle of all that. So there was tons to write about. It was never, it never felt yeah. like there was something not going on. And then I had my own passion, which was Motown, which was, you know, I was trying to bring, you know, write about an older culture, but, the fact is that watching the Russell Simmonses of the world and Andre Harrell's of the world try and build hip hop 
and even Spike trying to build his business definitely informed the Motown book in a sense because uh, you had young creative, black creative, and business people trying to build something. And then you're looking at how Barry Gordy and his team did what they did. So it all, one thing fed the next. They all sort of fed into each other. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, you, you mentioned uh, living in Brooklyn and everything because you actually would later talk about that in the, this documentary, uh, Brooklyn uh, Bohemian, yes. which is available uh to stream on YouTube and uh and and uh Amazon Prime and just uh they uh, they came they came out like uh, I think like 2011 2012 just uh I mean just what made you want to you know get back and cause you interviewed Spike you interviewed Chris Rock you interviewed Branford Marcellus uh Rosie Perez so many people around that area at that time Talib Kweli just uh, what made you decide to, to, to turn this thing into a movie? Well, it just seemed like uh, there had been a lot of articles written about uh, black film. There had been a lot of articles written about, obviously, the the whole um, Branford and Winton and their movement and all the sort of return to classical jazz. There had been articles about Lorna Simpson. But it felt like no one had actually put it all together that all of these people were in the same area for for key moments of their careers. And in fact, there were these intersecting worlds of black art that all existed within this very small geographical area. And uh, it struck me that that was basically, what I could see is close to the Harlem Renaissance in its own way, and anything that existed in terms of geography, um, the range of creative uh, expression, and the impact on culture. I mean, it was different because the black, the Harlem Renaissance was, was novels and poetry, you know, primarily, and some plays. This was, you know, this was film and music and uh, visual art uh, and acting. But it all, you know, it was just another parallel movement. So I felt like no one had ever put all that together into one place. And I, I felt like also, it was a time when um, I could also see that that era had ended and it wasn't coming back. Uh, and so it had a sense of historical distance. Uh, and, and now it's even more so because the neighborhood at that point was still maybe 50-50 black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now it's an overwhelmingly white area. Yeah. Well, well, I and with, you know, with, with high-rises and, you know, it's got... It doesn't even look the same. There are high rises, even they were being built then. Now the area is is, is circled by high rise condos. Yeah. Well, I was just about to ask you just how do you feel just about that though? Because you do bring that up in the documentary at the top, which is like it's a, it became a heavily gentrified area and had just like just this wave. I, I call it the the Lena Denimization of Brooklyn. I don't know if you feel the same way, but uh, just well, it's only. I mean, the thing is that. The, that's only parts of Brooklyn. I mean, I'm, uh, if you go to, you know, East New York or East or Flatbush or a lot of other areas, it's it's still Brooklyn. Um, mm-hmm. But certainly uh, Fort Greene, because of the quality of the housing stock, quite honestly, beautiful area, mm-hmm. it was always going to, I mean, it was to me it was always a matter of time before uh, big money came in there. 
you had that spectacular park, you had really beautiful brownstones. And when we were, when I was living there for most of that time, it was incredibly difficult for, for you to get a real good loan and they're, they're able to redline. So you'd go into people's houses and there'd be these, uh, they'd have these marble fireplaces, but the floor would be kind of messed up or there'd be, there'd be leaks in the ceiling, uh, or the staircases were still kind of creaky and it, getting home improvement loans was very difficult. So, um, uh -huh. it was, I always thought it was only a matter of time before, uh, that turned around. Uh, and what's ironic about it is that a lot of the people who left the neighborhood, you know, for LA or other places, some of the services that they complained about the lack of now exist there. I mean, it was very mm -hmm. hard to get quality groceries in, in that part of Brooklyn. In fact, probably mm -hmm. in any part of Brooklyn at that point. You know, it was just, it was all those kind of services. Now there's Apple stores and there's Whole Foods and all that stuff there, but that, that it was very hard to go shopping. In the midst of all of this great talent living there, you know, there was mostly just bodegas and a couple of sea towns. Uh -huh. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't quality food, believe me. So, yeah. Uh, you know, so, but it, it is what it is. Uh, it was a moment, what, you know, being kind of in a story and you realize that these things all have a time. They're connected to generations. They're connected to real estate. They're connected to, uh, artistic moments. Uh, and that moment was a pretty good one. And I'm, um, yeah. I'm, I'm actually thinking about going back and actually exploring that era, that time again in a book. In a book. Well, here's something, because, uh, the first time I believe we, have, you know, we ever spoke was, uh, 20 years ago when I interviewed you for like an appearance, you were coming down here. And, uh, you know, and I remember you being, uh, quite, um uh, 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 quite, quite, I don't know, adamant or just expressive about how, like, a lot of things wasn't really, um, uh, catching your fancy, if you will. Uh, and, uh, you know, music wise, you know, and just, and almost in, 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 in just reading and just, uh, reading the mixtape and just going back to all the things you covered. I mean, I would seem how just like things, you know, especially as, as you get older, tend to not be as interesting as it once was. And uh, I don't know if you, if you still feel that way now. Uh, you know, here we are 20 years later and just like, is like, is there anything in music that's, uh, that's, that's, that's interesting you? Yeah. Uh, I like a lot of the, the new generation of R&B, uh, her, Anderson Park. Mm -hmm. um, Khalid, uh, I think I think there's some really great talent there. Um, I find yeah. mo I find that whole group more interesting than what's going on in hip hop. Yeah, because well, it's funny you say because like you know, I was just about to say, you mean you know, as 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 I don't know if you know the uh, young Ma, young Ma, whatever the hell her name is, he was that he said. Uh, uh, you know, there's not a lot of good, uh, R&B music out there and being like, and like people, you know, like PJ Morton, like sent her a whole damn list on Twitter. It just like, it always yeah. seems, it, it always seems to seem like nobody seems to grasp that there is good R&B out there. Just like, you just have to look for it. The issue is, the issue is that the, the delivery system for R&B is broken down. Uh, black radio, the black radio that supported 
even D'Angelo and Maxwell, 20 years, 25, you know, and Jill Scott doesn't exist. Yeah. So because hip-hop has, has, has colonized the entire culture, um, people don't really – there's no consistent vehicle where people can be exposed to the fact that there's tons of great singers and, and so uh, there's a young brother whose who's name is escaping right now, a guitar player, who play, who was part of um, the internet, like him a great deal. He's got a couple oh, of Oh, Steve albums. Lacey? Steve yeah, Lacey. Yeah, like him. Yeah, Steve Lacey. Uh, you know, Thundercats, so forth. So, oh, um, yeah. There's lots and lots of great music and great musicians. A lot of them, ironically, out of Los Angeles. Um, oh, yeah. So I think that, uh, I think, you know, I mean, the job, the, you know, if I if I was still doing that full time, that would be the job. How do you how do you uh, how do you get all this new this music not just in front of younger people, but in front of older people who are bemoaning the fact that there is no good new music. Yeah. Well, just uh, just had had me think because uh, you know you you kind of. You know, start. You know, you've done books. You've uh, you've read about. You've also done novels. You know, the you got. Uh, you know, done like a, uh, done novels like *Urban Romance* and *Seduce*. But you've also got your own line of uh, of uh, detective novels. If you call that uh, the you know the, the D Hunter series. Right. And I was wondering, just like, is that ever is that is that ever going to become like a, a thing where we might. That might be adapted into a film or tele- television work. We'll see. I mean, at the, the I have one more coming out in August. Uh, oh, the fifth okay. book. It, it's called The Darkest Hearts. That'll be out on Akashic in August. Um, I mean, uh, I've had feelers at various times from various people about it. Um, but you know, it's funny. I didn't. I didn't really write these books to be a movie or TV show. I kind of. Um, I wanted to write something about music and the fact the relationship between music and kind of the underworld, I guess. And that's something that's, that's fascinated me is how music is so attached because of the nature of where music happens at night, it happens in clubs, it happens in places where people are getting high. Uh, the underworld has always been involved, whether it's from the mafia days or the crack dealer days uh, in financing and in supporting, you know, music. Um, so that was the initial spark for doing it and using the character of D. Hunter, this sort of bodyguard, doorman guy. Um, really, really, uh, so, so I mean, I wanted to just tell some stories, and there were things that, that I would see that didn't really fit into any of my nonfiction books. Um, uh-huh. So I'm hoping, uh, you know, maybe, because this is going to be kind of the, the fifth, I think the final one I'm going to do, I've done, this would be number five. Um, uh-huh. I think that I, I might spend more, I might focus more on trying to make those into a series or a movie now. But I was kind of just doing them, you know, amidst other things. And um, it's just funny because I've had feelers from a, of people over the years, but it really, uh, none of it, none of it really got serious. Yeah. So we'll see in the new environment where, where they, where there's tons of black content, see what I can do. Yeah, maybe you just strike up a deal with BET Plus or something. You used to work at BET, I believe. So yes, so just for a minute. Uh, you know. I mean, it's a whole different world. I, that wouldn't be my first port of call. Yeah, 
But yeah, you know, that's all the things. It's like you've uh, you you dipped in that whole uh, Hollywood realm. You've co-written the script for Strictly Business and CB4. You did that with Chris Rock, and just is that uh, uh, something that uh, like you, you would you know is is that something you still uh, trying to delve into more? Just like uh, you know, trying to say you say you're working on projects and everything. I don't know if like scripts are a part of that. I saw that you had the script for Joker sitting on your desk on an Instagram picture, so I didn't know if that was, you know, we were working on something like in that realm. I'm doing a ton. I mean, I, I've been doing tons. I mean, I uh, I was a producer on Tales from the Tour Bus, uh, yeah. the HBO Cinemax series. I was a writer on the Get Down, which is still up on on uh, you know Netflix, yeah. the Get Down series. Yeah, so I'm involved in a lot of stuff. Um, I'm doing a script. I'm writing a script now for a production company, and I'm also producing um, a number of uh, nonfiction book documentaries and doc series. So I'm, uh, that's what I've been. That's been my focus the last, uh, pretty much the last two or three years. I mean, uh-huh. I don't really see um, much future. I still love writing books, and that's what I'm going to continue to do. But I, I don't think that. Um, that's going to be how I make my living. Uh, yeah. You know, I make most of my, you know, most of my income now comes from doing, um, you know, uh, film or TV projects. I'm, I mean, uh, right now, in fact, one of the projects I'm working on is uh, a documentary about the Great Dane hip hop photograph. Oh, okay. The XXL yeah, uh, covers that happened. That was kind of like the Great Dane jazz thing. I actually wrote like, a huge piece. That was supposed to be somewhere about like how a great dad hip hop kind of um, uh, begat all these other hip hop great days all over the place, but uh, it didn't really. I just ended up putting it on my medium page. But uh, so, like, when is that? When you think that's going to pop off? Uh, we're editing it now because I have. Uh, I actually have exclusive footage that that I am. Um that I own from that day. It's been sitting in a it's been sitting in a storage locker for like thirty years. Uh, um, so I have footage from the beginning. I was involved in the preparation for it happening. Um, so hopefully that'll be I don't know, I mean an interesting question. I'm still cutting it together. I hopefully will have something to show people this summer and then maybe have it have it out in some form into this year or definitely next year. Yeah. Well, like, before we get out of here, um, as uh, as I've been, uh, you know, getting back into doing, uh, just uh, asking uh, my my interview subject, basically, you know, since this is, the show is called Everything is Canceled, is there anything in particular you would like to cancel? Is there anything that's pissing you the hell off? That you wanna, you know, you you wanna get off the chessel area, stuff. stuff no, you just want, that, uh, you uh, uh, Donald Trump shouldn't be calling it the Chinese virus. Well, oh, yeah. So that he should be. Me off. Yeah, he, he should be, be talking. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm not really a, you know, that's the number one thing that pisses me off right now. Other than that, um, I'm just uh, happy that people are taking care of themselves and actually. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, people will have a couple of weeks, or hopefully, just a couple of weeks, but maybe longer, to uh, to explore some things. You know, this is a chance for people to really get into 
the book they wanted to finish, the movie they wanted to see, yeah. the thing they wanted to write, the thing they wanted to read. It's a good time for us to, to really build and, 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 uh, and connect us our some stuff that may have time and have allowed us to cut, get into before. So I'm just people, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm hopefully people are canceling laziness. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. Just like, I it, it is very it is a very optimistic way of looking at things, but just like just I, and I would hope that more people would do that, but just like I, I have a feeling it looks like if they if this keeps this up, if this whole like quarantine thing keeps up any longer, like people are gonna start losing their shit. I don't know if you saw like I, I, you know we're recording this the night before Twitter basically tried to cancel Oprah because a rumor started going around that she was, uh, her, her home was uh, raided for a child sex trafficking. Did you see that? No. <laughs> yeah, that that shit actually happened. It, we were three, four days into the goddamn quarantine and motherfuckers are already like, you know, Oprah, like, the same motherfucker. Yeah, but, man, but listen, man, I mean, but to, to me that's the number one thing uh, that you got to cancel is noise. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the number one thing. I'm, I'm, you know, I tell my, my you, you can't, you can't, you have to really monitor what you intake. And, yeah. Because uh, cause American, American media and now the Internet thrives on fear and, and rumor and controversy. Mm-hmm. Uh the unsubstantiated and the uninformed, and you can't yeah. you can't allow yourself to be dragged into that. Yeah, that is so true. Just like you know, just just you know, turn off the goddamn mobile device and just I don't know, just 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 hear the clouds or whatever the hell, because like just people talking bullshit. Or you could uh, go to uh, the Pacific. Uh, what is the Pacific website? Um, uh, God, I'm trying to see. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Pacific, Pacific dot hub and, and pick up a copy of the Nelson George, uh, mixtape volume one. See how I just flipped all that in there? Uh, I love yeah, it. it is, yeah, and, uh, so, I mean, uh, is there going to be more? Because it's like you said, volume one. Are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. I, I think probably next year we'll we'll do a, we'll do another one with a lot. I have a, a lot of music stuff, some other music stuff that's not in there, as well as um, a lot of film stuff with the Hughes Brothers, Spike Lee, some of that stuff mm-hmm. there, and then maybe a couple of tasty uh, sports pieces. Yeah. All right, so cool. Look, looking forward to that. And uh, where can people uh, track you down? What's what's your media's? I'm on people... Twitter and I'm on a, I'm on a 315 Nelson George on Instagram. I'm Nelson George on Twitter. So you can get me either of those two places. All right. Well, uh, thank you uh, very much uh, for taking part in this, uh, Mr. George. I appreciate it. And it's always fun uh, talking to you. Just talking to a a uh, person whose work I've I've admired for the for the longest, and just uh, give me some more time to pick your brain. So just like good luck with all the projects you got going for you. Hey man, be well. Thank you so much, man. And uh, let me know and hit me up when you're the poster. I def- definitely will do that. Okay, bro. Take care. Uh, you too.
Thank you. Bye. All right. That was uh, me and uh, Nelson George. Me trying to sound like I know what the fuck I'm talking about. Just, I'm just listening back on this and just like I said, the night before Oprah's, you know, everybody said Oprah was running sex, you know, you know, the night, the day after, that's what I should have said, but just like my, my parents scrambles like in the morning and I was sober. So yeah, just, but, uh, hopefully that, that sounded good for y'all. Um, well, I just want to. I forgot to uh, also uh, bring up my uh, uh, contacts and everything. Um, you can uh, hit me up on uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Byte. Still trying to figure out how to use that Byte shit. I'm on TikTok, but I don't use that bullshit. Um, want to get me on all that? It's it's at Uncle Crizzle, all of it at Uncle Crizzle. Um, let's see if you uh, want to donate to the podcast, you can go to paypal.me slash Uncle Crizzle. You know, U N C L E C R I Z Z L E. I also have a Cash App. I just remembered it's like dollar sign Uncle Two. The, new, the number two and the crizzle. Yeah, just everybody, I know everybody's on Cash App and everybody's trying to get stuff through Cash App, but I just, I, I prefer PayPal. That's, I've, I've been, you know, rolling with that for two decades. So I just figured just PayPal might be easier. Um, so I thought I'd uh, close this out. I know, uh, uh, Katie Rogers, uh, you know, uh, a, a Houston, native uh passed away not too long ago and i decided i'd just uh end the whole thing by playing this um track that came out in the 80s a very a very power ballady power ballad with uh him the late great james ingram and the still alive kim carnes called uh what about me uh Produced by David Foster, written written by Richard Marks, I believe that. And uh, just so I close things out with that, uh, you know, get the parents because they probably might recognize this shit. Um, so yeah, just once again, take care of yourself. <laughs> I'm pulling out the Jerry Springer quote: "Take care of yourselves and each, and each other." Uh, Trump's a Trump's a paid a little bitch. His, his dick probably don't work. And just tell him I said so. So, uh, till then, uh, Sarah Huckabee, uh, you, me, and uh, some motherfucking handy wipes. Let's go. Someone to give 